Welcome to the Weekly Beat by Mansa with your hosts Arnold Segawa, Maggie Mutesi, and Dumi Jere, giving you all the info on Africa's big finance and economic stories. The Weekly Beat by Mansa. Greetings and welcome to uh, this edition of uh, Mansa's The Weekly Beat. This happens to be a series of uh, specials that uh, we will be doing. Uh, my name is Arnold Sagawa and as always I'm joined by uh, very lovely co-hosts uh, Dumi Jerry and Maggie Mutasi. This particular series we're going to be looking at uh, commodities in line with uh, the Global Commodities Forum which uh, is focusing on uh, strengthening resilience in commodity dependent countries and it's only fair that uh, our resident uh, Lob Trotter and uh, a traveler Maggie Mutasi is on ground in Geneva, Switzerland, <laughs> where the meetings will be uh, taking place. I won't even ask uh, where Dumi is. I'm sure he's also uh, somewhere very complex and uh, hard to find. Let me start with you, Maggie. How are you doing? How are the 15 flights between two weeks treating you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing really great, particularly looking forward to this uh, conference uh, with Anctad because um, it's been uh, an interesting year since COVID-19 hit. So for lots of countries like in Africa that depend on uh, commodities, you know, like oil, minerals, and all of that, coffee. You know, it's interesting to hear the conversations uh, on how we move forward. Dumi, how is September treating you? No, September is uh, good. It's good. I'm looking forward to the discussions that are going on. I'm in agreement with what Maggie is saying with regards to how most of these commodities particularly affect our continent, Africa. Most of our countries rely heavily on commodities. So such conversations are timely and um, yeah, really, really, really looking forward and excited to what's going to be happening at this conference. Of course, I did mention uh, that uh, these particular series of uh, podcasts that uh, we will be doing uh, this week are in partnership and they are sponsored by uh, the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development. That's Anktat. So if you hear us uh, mentioning Anktat a few times, uh, don't be surprised. Lumi, like you've said, it's only fair that we uh, delve into the conversation around uh, resilience, especially in our country that uh, do rely on uh, commodities. Maggie, you're on ground. Uh, Just give us a sense of uh, what the expectations are post-2020, which, for all fairness, uh, was tougher than tough. This is the very first time they are hosting the Global Commodities Forum. And interestingly, which I found so amazing, is that it's being hosted by the government of Barbados, another island country, even the conference itself, I would call it resilience because it's uh, hosted in different countries because of what we've seen with COVID-19 people can physically meet. But the whole idea is to see how to move forward with international trade. How do people continue trading? How do people adapt to new ways, even in situations like these where logistics are at a standstill? Uh, you know, when countries have locked down their economies, how do we continue to trade? There are lots of guests or panelists that we are expecting to hear from uh, in terms of uh, their best practices and experiences from their own countries. And obviously, the only reason 
conferences or even conversations like these happen is that to learn from each other. Obviously, with the lineup of people that will be speaking or contributing is another opportunity for countries to learn from each other, but also another opportunity for countries to forge a new way and start their energies towards opening up and creating new ways to trade. Mm, of course, we're going to talk about uh, any United Nations uh, program or even conference without bringing in the Sustainable Development goals, the SDGs. And Mm -hmm. this has, of course, been dubbed the decade for action. Remember, the SDGs, the agenda is actually 2030. Dumi, your thoughts on finding a middle ground between the commodities issue resilience that we are going to mention a few times here vis-a-vis the conversation that goes uh, part and parcel with achieving the SDGs where, let's face it, uh, many African countries are really slacking. Indeed. So, if there's one thing I think uh, that we have spoken about at length on this podcast this year, it's uh, the impact that uh, COVID-19 pandemic has had on a lot of uh, countries, individual livelihoods, uh, companies and so forth. One thing that's for sure, I think we mentioned it on one of the podcasts that, for example, the countries that relied heavily on commodities seemed to suffer the most. They bore the brunt of the pandemic. And what that just shows is the irreversible nature of uh, global interdependence. So while it is also clear on the one side that the crisis is going to have far-reaching consequences for the international economic order as we have come to know it, I mean, we keep using terms like the new normal. So that's the international economic order that we have come to know it. So it's also equally clear at the same time that the long-term effects will fall, call it disproportionately, on the vulnerable and disadvantaged uh, in our societies. So when we then look at the SDGs, those disadvantaged in our societies or those that, that are going to be more vulnerable, then they are set to suffer more. So conversations like these, meetings like these, where stakeholders and uh, government heads put heads together and say, What is the direction that we're going to take? They're very timely. While obviously COVID-19 pandemic is a catastrophic event, catastrophic circumstances can actually also be powerful catalysts for positive and fundamental change. So if we propel this catastrophic event that has happened, we are sure to find middle ground and um, definitely positive and fundamental change uh, for the future. Mm. Maggie, I want to come back to you. Uh, do you get the sense that uh, the issue around uh, value addition is uh, inseparable from resilience when it comes to this uh, conversation around uh, resilience for commodity-dependent countries? Because at least the way I would see it is uh, mm. part of the issues that uh, has plagued the African continent or many countries that are dependent on commodities is the fact that after extraction, you know, it's just a matter of export. If at all this is addressed, then would that boy or reinforce the issues around resilience moving forward? Interesting question, Arnold. Obviously, for me, as Africans, we would say that's very inseparable. I mean, when you talk about resilience, when you talk about diversification, you definitely have to talk about value addition because one of the problems or challenges we have as a continent is um, also being able to export raw material instead of making the end product from home and be able to trade with each other. And then that brings us to other things like AFCFTA and, you know, would there even be need to do as much exporting as we do? 
do and lots of other questions. And I really want to follow this uh, closely to hear what panelists or speakers really have to say. Uh, but let's not forget this is a global commodities forum. Also, our fair share on this global stage is still very minimal. And uh, Arnold, I would like you to come in here and correct me if I'm wrong. But um, as conversations are ongoing, even when I keep saying to myself is, there is Asia, there is the Caribbean, you know, there is all these countries that also have their own challenges in terms of, uh, it might not be what we face in Africa, but it's also international trade is a very complex topic right now, especially in times like these. But we cannot stay without trade. We have to trade with each other. I mean, uh, before Dumi comes in on the same, um, I would definitely argue that uh, one of the issues around commodity dependent countries, and here I want to bring in the likes of Nigeria, is the fact that if there's a shock, you know, in commodity prices, let's say, uh, you remember when uh, a barrel of uh, crude oil dropped to what, 21, and futures prices were also affected. Nigeria feels the pinch almost immediately. Oh, don't get me started on South Sudan, where close to uh, 90% of the fiscal uh, budget is actually dependent on uh, oil receipts. Now, if a country like that is at the table, which I expect they will be, I mean, this is a global conference where uh, you're having policymakers and practitioners to actually address the current challenges and future opportunities for the commodity-dependent countries. You know, you would be thinking, how then can they reaffirm their position and make sure it's not just crude that's, you know, going out of the country? I mean, that's the way that I would be thinking. But again, it's maybe something else that's different. Now, this does not take away from the conversation around trade because you're still trading. The question then would be, what are you trading? Because if there's value addition, then on the global market, you may fetch a better price than just being South Sudan and all you import is your now blend, quote unquote, crude oil. Uh, send it to the market and, you know, you fetch whatever you can fetch as opposed to someone who is exporting something that is a, a bit more refined. I think Dangote in Nigeria is working very hard on this, uh, trying to set up a refinery. So it's uh, actions like that that one could argue kind of reinforces some of these countries to make sure it's not just a matter of export, export, export. Uh, mm -hmm. There's then the next uh, position is what are we exporting? Is there any value? Dumi, what do you think? I'm inclined to agree with um, the view that you're taking with regards to the exports that um, these countries would likely make. On another angle, though, I wanted to bring in the point around climate change because this is something that is very passionate uh, to me. I'm part of an organization called uh, Leaders for Climate Change. So it's a group of um, people across the world who have made a commitment to sort of reduce their um, carbon emissions and do their bit in uh, climate change. So this is one topic that I'm really looking forward to in the discussions because there's lots that needs to happen to reach the goals, for example, of the Paris Agreement. Doing so would imply a quadrupling of, uh, call it the mineral requirements for clean energy technologies by the year 2040, as per the Paris Agreement. So recycling, reusing, uh, all those efforts, those are things that could relieve pressure on uh, primary supply. Switching to different kinds of energy, for example, the solar photovoltaic plants or the wind farms uh, and so forth. Those are all changes that are going to contribute to a green economy. So for me, I'm really looking forward to that because 
addressing and minimizing the environmental as well as the social impacts of um, mineral development is also key in uh, doing our bit for the earth and uh, our bit for the climate. And that uh, obviously includes the emissions associated with mining, with processing, even with oil refinery, like you're talking about commodities in Nigeria. The risks from uh, inadequate waste and water management, this is exactly the stuff that I'm uh, looking forward to. Mm. And of course, that comes up in the third session. I see uh, on the program, session three, the future of oil and gas dependent countries in an era of energy transition. Uh, Dumi, you do mention uh, the transition away from uh, non-renewables, you know, and some countries are doing a good job. I think um, Norway is one of those. uh, Their sovereign wealth fund is actually made it clear they're moving away from non-renewable investments and it's steps like that that uh, would even have the more traditional companies you know i don't want to mention names but uh, you know the heavy hitters and the non-renewable space also rethinking okay if the norwegian uh, sovereign wealth fund is moving away from this is it time that we also uh, rethought our model and move towards uh, greener energies so maggie i want to bring you in on this particular session oil and gas uh, vis-a-vis uh, energy transition. I think your two cents here would be uh, very welcome. For me, two things I'm really looking forward to hearing. One is that when we talk about green energy, 50% of Africa is green. So I want to understand what is a green economy? What do they mean exactly? And are we far behind if uh, sub-Saharan Africa is 50% green? I mean, if countries like Kenya, Rwanda, Ethiopia, how and where they are, is it easier for them to transition to green economies than maybe Germany, France, or these countries that have to disinvest to be able to invest in green energy. I mean, it's something I'm really looking forward. For me, I've already said that, you know, when it comes to transitioning to green energy, I just feel like Africa could actually have a leverage if I think of it in that way, uh, in that sense of going green. I think we already have an added advantage now. It's about investment. It's about getting the right technologies. And it's about, of course, governments understanding how important and crucial this is to be able to move from oils to to green energy. Mm. Um, Guys, we only have a few more minutes uh, left. And it's only fair that uh, we dedicate this to uh, the elephant in the room, at least uh, when it comes to Africa. One of the themes that uh, is very exciting for me is the food security and smart agriculture, uh, the role of technology and services. Just the other day in Nairobi, uh, they were hosting the Alliance for Green Revolution for Africa. Agro was having its uh, big annual event, AGRF, you know, and President Uhuru Kenyatta was talking about, you know, we need to uh, invest more in agriculture. We've had all these big plans, at least on the continent, uh, when it comes to uh, the Maputo Declaration, where 10% of uh, the fiscus is supposed to go towards agriculture. What do you say would be the ideal takeaway from such a session? I want to hear from the two of you. Yes, investment, well, looking towards uh, technology and services in line of uh, with smart agriculture, but also some of the standing uh, declarations that were made, at least uh, for the African part. Again, I don't want to focus on Africa alone because this is a global conference, you know, but takeaways from food security and smart agriculture Themed session. Let me start with you, Dumi. Uh, Maggie, or you wrap it up. For me, when you look at uh, the sustainable development goals, the second one, I think that's the one that you're talking about, which uh, has got something to do with promoting sustainable agriculture. 
the United Nations set um, ending hunger, achieving food security as one of that sustainable development goal. And we are only about nine or so years uh, to the targeted achievement date, which is 2030. And we are running short on time as things keep changing. So there's a great need to ensure that um, there's food security. And the key takeaway for me would be addressing some of the, I don't want to call it basic, but for lack of a better word, basic issues. For example, access to markets. How do we ensure that for uh, some of the small scale farmers and we're not just focusing on the big farmers? Let's face it. When we look at developing countries across the world, there is a large number of um, small to medium farmers and not Mm. just uh, commercial farmers. So for those people, how do we improve uh, market access? And um, also from a production perspective, how do you then enhance uh, the supply capacity? How do we uh, reduce, uh, for example, the food import bills in some of the countries? Because sometimes it boggles the mind how some of the countries have got lots of arable land, but they end up incurring huge import food bills. So that would be my key takeaway to try and understand more around that uh, topic for me. Before Maggie comes in, Dumi, can we talk about uh, access to markets without addressing the fact that there's no storage capacity on much of the continent or uh, there's a lot of uh, billions, billions and billions of food goes to waste uh, Mm. annually because we just cannot store it, you know, which is different in uh, most parts of the developed world. Yeah, that's a point that I hadn't, uh, well, it is very valid. So, Yes, we don't have capacity to store some of these things. So I guess that would be one of the things that we would need to start from. If we zoom it to Africa per se, and we zoom it further to, say, SADC, I mean, obviously all these regional blocks have got, call them divisions that deal with food security and all of that. But Mm. it doesn't seem like it forms part of the conversations that they have per region that how do we ensure that the food security around the storage of it and ensuring Mm. that it's there when it's um, now needed uh, in a particular country um, is addressed. So I think um, Mm. if they're going to be paying particular attention to some of these conversations, then it will trigger some action. Mm. Uh, Just uh, for context, uh, before Maggie, you wrap us up. Looking at the statistics for the United Nations Environment Program, in the United States, 30% of all food is thrown away. That's close to 48 billion US dollars. In Africa, because of our inefficient processing and poor storage, uh, the website does say that uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, post-harvest food losses are estimated to be 4 billion US dollars a year, enough to feed 48 million people. Yes. Uh, Maggie? Interesting statistics, Arnold. I'm going to touch on far away from agriculture, if that's okay with you. But uh, for me, from such conversations on going anywhere, everywhere, I think there is always a tendency to say, how do we help developing countries, you know, to better integrate into the global economy? And right here, I want to say, if we keep saying that, then it could be the problem why even developing countries are not integrating. I think right now, from such conversations, what I expect to hear is beyond just helping developing economies for me. It's about forging partnerships 
to be able to work with developing countries as partners, not as charity. I mean, the funding is needed, but in places like these or even conversations like these, where you have the private sector, government, civil society, you have everybody in the room. It's important to note that also Africa or the Caribbean or these other countries, but let's speak specifically for Africa because this podcast is African, is to note that, you know, the times of saying what can we do for Africa are actually long past and COVID-19 has also reminded us that we are equals. And what I'm expecting to hear and the takeaway is how would we work together? How would we support each other? How would we forge partnerships towards a, a common future of equal trade? It might be far away, but this could be a nice start to think like this. So it's not that we don't have the capacity, but haven't got it right yet. And it's not that we need the help, but it's known that how do we get you out of there? But how do we share our experiences or how do we help each other? How do we partner together to help you get to where you are? For me, briefly, that is what I would expect. Many thanks for that, Maggie. And of course, uh, Dumi, don't forget uh, this uh, particular series of podcasts is in our conjunction with Anktad. Be sure to uh, look out for all the proceedings. I remember Maggie Mutasi is in Geneva for this uh, particular conference. Uh, we will be uh, sharing all the sessions and uh, whatever transpires on the website. That's mansamedia.africa on Twitter. We're at uh, Mansa underscore media. Uh, many thanks to you, Dumi, and uh, of course, uh, Maggie, for joining us. I'm Arnold Segoe. If you missed anything in the course of the day or the week, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Mansa underscore media for me and the entire team. Have a lovely day. The Weekly Beat by Mansa with your hosts, Arnold Segawa, Maggie Mutesi, and Dumi Jerry, giving you all the info on Africa's big finance and economic stories. The Weekly Beat by Mansa. Mansa.